On October 8, 1849, Sarah Elmira Royster Shelton was making last-minute arrangements for her wedding. In just a few days, she'd marry her childhood sweetheart, Edgar Allan Poe. He was away attending to business in Philadelphia and packing up his cottage in New York. Sarah, who mostly went by Elmira, imagined her fiancé saying goodbye to the room where his first wife had died. She knew that, at times, Poe had turned to drinking to escape the pain of that loss, but now she could be his source of comfort just as soon as he returned to Richmond. Elmira poured herself a cup of tea and picked up a newspaper. As she scanned the front page, her eye caught on her fiancé's name. She read the first line. We regret to learn that Edgar A. Poe, the distinguished American poet, died in this city yesterday morning after an illness of four or five days. Elmira screamed. Her three brothers walked into the parlor, their heads bowed, like they'd been waiting for this moment. They didn't need to read the paper to know what it said. One of them managed to stammer the words, Sister, we have something to tell you. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our second episode on the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe. Many historians believe he died due to complications from alcohol abuse. But his last days on Earth are shrouded in mystery, which leaves plenty of room for speculation. Last episode, we walked through the official story of Poe's ill-fated final journey from Richmond to Philadelphia and New York. What should have been a quick trip north ended with his death in Baltimore under strange circumstances. This episode, we're looking into some of the leading theories about what went wrong. Perhaps Poe died from a brain injury after being robbed, or he was murdered by someone in his inner circle, or maybe he was taken prisoner by political gangs who tortured him into committing voter fraud. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. After a lifetime of deprivation and obscurity, 40-year-old writer Edgar Allan Poe had finally become a sensation. By the fall of 1849, he was close to achieving his lifelong dream of launching a literary magazine. And he was engaged to his first love, his childhood sweetheart, Elmira Royster Shelton. Poe left Richmond on September 27th for a quick business trip to Philadelphia and New York. But immediately after leaving Virginia, he went missing for several days. He was next seen outside a tavern in Baltimore. He was incoherent and in pain, and he was wearing threadbare and mismatched garments. A stranger recognized Poe and took him to a local hospital, but he never regained his senses, meaning he couldn't explain what he was doing in his former hometown or the reason for his fragile health. There's no definitive record that explains his cause of death. The leading theory is complications due to chronic alcohol abuse, but that answer wasn't satisfying to many of Poe's friends, colleagues, or biographers. They all wanted to know why he was missing for several days and why he was wearing unusual clothes. Something more was going on. This brings us to conspiracy theory number one. Poe was mugged and a brain injury led to his death. The leading proponent of this theory was Dr. John J. Moran, Poe's final attending physician. Moran's conclusion after Poe's intake exam was that the author was not drunk, but beaten. But remember how the doctor's credibility came into question in part one. He dramatically embellished his story of Poe's final days. He even changed his mind about what Poe's last words were. So he's a less than reliable source, even around something as seemingly straightforward as a medical diagnosis. But there were several other credible witnesses, and their narratives bolstered the doctor's opinion that Poe was attacked. Let's start with one proposed by poet and biographer Elizabeth Oak Smith. Smith wrote an article in 1867 called Autobiographic Notes, Edgar Allan Poe. She claimed that shortly before his death, Poe exchanged flirtatious correspondences with a young woman. Smith declined to name the lady involved, but it's safe to assume it was not Poe's fiance. He was known to carry on multiple romances at a time, so this much is believable. According to Smith, the couple quarreled, and the young lady demanded Poe return her missives. But Poe held on to them, enraging his paramour. She dispatched a group of intimidating gentlemen to scare Poe into giving up the love letters. But again, Poe declined to hand them over. So, according to Smith, the lady's hired henchman, quote, beat the unhappy man in a most ruffianly manner. 
Smith was adamant that Poe developed a fatal brain fever as a result of these injuries and that he didn't die of complications from alcohol abuse. She conceded that Poe liked to drink, but she insisted that his reputation as a drunkard was a slanderous exaggeration. And she was well-positioned to make that kind of statement about his drinking and about his love life. Smith was a literary socialite who frequented highbrow salons where New York's literati took turns reciting their poetry and exchanging gossip. She also met Poe personally on numerous occasions. At these gatherings, Smith would have observed Poe's behavior under the influence, and she would have been privy to rumors about his romantic dalliances. But Smith offers nothing to substantiate her story. By concealing the identity of the young lady at the center of her theory, she left us no way to verify it. And there isn't sufficient evidence to even venture a suspect. However, there is a separate theory in which Poe also died after a beating in Baltimore. This one was put forward by Eugene Didier. He was a newspaper editor and a historian, mostly remembered as a leading Poe biographer. In his 1872 essay, The Grave of Poe, Didier claims that the true story of Poe's death has never been told. He implied that his version of events came straight from his conversations with Poe's aunt, Maria Clem. According to Didier, when Poe's steamboat from Richmond arrived in Baltimore, he discovered that he'd missed his connecting train to Philadelphia. The next one wasn't for a few hours, so he decided to pass the time in a restaurant. While he was there, he ran into some former classmates from his brief stint at West Point. They invited him to join them later for drinks. At first, he refused their offers of alcohol, but eventually, he gave in and raised a glass of champagne with his buddies. One glass led to another and another. In just a few short hours, Poe was drunk. And while he was severely intoxicated, he wandered off from his drinking companions. Didier wrote that Poe, alone and vulnerable, was robbed and beaten by ruffians and left insensible in the street all night. He didn't go into detail as to what exactly made Poe the target of a mugging, but it's possible that in his inebriated state, Poe made himself an easy mark by telegraphing that he was carrying a big stack of cash. Shortly before Poe had left Richmond, his former employer, John R. Thompson, claimed to have commissioned him to write an article, and he paid Poe an advance. But that's not the half of it. Two sources who had close contact with Poe said he possessed a small fortune. Poe's entire purpose on his trip was to raise startup capital to establish a literary magazine. It would have been the culmination of a lifelong dream, potentially one of the only viable career options he had left. By that point, he'd proven himself incapable of working for anyone else for more than a year or two. When Poe boarded his steamer, he allegedly had $1,500 in cash. That would be almost $50,000 today. 
This information comes to us from Dr. John Carter, the last person Poe visited in Richmond. Bishop Oscar Penn Fitzgerald, a newspaper editor and author, corroborated the amount. Fitzgerald met Poe during his Southern summer and attended some of his lectures. He described Poe's final public talk in his memoir. The novelist had addressed a packed house at the Exchange Hotel. Each of the 300 audience members had paid $5 for their seat and a one-year subscription to the magazine. However, we can't confirm whether Poe was carrying that much money on the night of his death, simply because it was never recovered. It wasn't on Poe's person when he was discovered outside the tavern. But it also wasn't in his traveling trunk, which had gone missing by the time the hospital admitted Poe. In a letter to Maria Clem, Poe's cousin Nielsen said that the luggage was nowhere to be found. Nielsen eventually got a hold of the trunk, and he detailed the contents in a letter to one of Poe's literary peers. It contained a few essays, books, and letters, but no giant wad of cash. The missing money could be further evidence that Poe was mugged, and the lost trunk could help explain why he was wearing strange clothes when he was discovered. Poe was known to wear expensive clothing. If the ruffians took him for everything he had, they may have even stripped him out of his dandyish duds. Without his suitcase, Poe wouldn't have had a spare set to change into. He might have had to beg for pennies to purchase something secondhand or ask for cast-offs from a kind stranger, which would explain the threadbare outfit he was found in. But most historians agree it's more likely that the money never existed at all. With all due respect to the doctor and the bishop, there's no evidence to back up the assertion that Poe was flush with cash. He'd been trying for years to gin up the funds for a magazine. And all of his previous attempts combined totaled less than what he allegedly raked in from that one speech. That seems like a weird thing for Fitzgerald to lie about. Well, this isn't the only tall tale he told about Poe. His father-in-law was at West Point while Poe was a student there. Throughout his life, people would ask Fitzgerald for stories about Poe's infamous youthful excesses. It seems that he got in the habit of inventing stories rather than telling the more mundane ones. And Dr. Carter's accounts also grew more fantastical with time. Even if he didn't have the sum that Fitzgerald and Carter reported, Poe probably did have the cash advance for the article. Maybe it was enough for a jealous mugger to beat him to death over. I don't think so. We don't know how much his old boss paid him, but it couldn't have been much. If Poe could have made a living from that kind of writing, he wouldn't have had to go on the lecture tour to begin with. The allegation that Poe was carrying a small fortune simply doesn't fit the facts. Let's review those facts. We have two independent versions of a similar story. Both say that Poe was physically assaulted. This would back up his doctor's opinion that he was badly beaten and not intoxicated. Yeah, but that same doctor wrote a tawdry memoir to capitalize on his proximity to Poe's death and he completely fabricated an alternative version of Poe's last words, so I'm not impressed. 
On a scale from 1 to 10, where 1 is unbelievable and 10 is very believable, I'm giving conspiracy theory number 1 a 3 out of 10. The story makes intuitive sense, and there's not a lot of counter-evidence. I don't know. We can't discredit it completely, but it doesn't have a lot going for it either. Both versions were written by personal friends who probably didn't want Poe's legacy tarnished. Rather than admit he died of alcohol abuse, they might have come up with less shameful theories. I'm giving it a 2 out of 10. So Poe probably wasn't mugged, but he may have met a different type of violent end. Perhaps he was killed by those he trusted the most, his fiancé's family. Up next, Poe's engagement may have cost him his life. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Edgar Allan Poe's doctor and friends suggested that he died after being mugged in Baltimore. It could have been over a packet of love letters, or because he wasn't discreet about carrying a big wad of cash. But they all agree that he died on October 7, 1849, not of alcohol poisoning, but of his injuries. Our next theory also hinges on Poe being assaulted, but for a very different reason. Conspiracy theory number two. Poe's fiancé's brothers tried to scare him into calling off his engagement— and Poe died after their attack. At the center of this theory lies the person Poe held dearest of all, Elmira Royster Shelton. Her father had been pleased when Elmira broke off her youthful engagement with Poe to marry another. He thought that Elmira was too young and Poe was too unsavory for the couple to wed. At her father's insistence, Elmira married a wealthy merchant named Alexander Shelton, The couple had two children who survived childhood, but the family's happiness was fleeting. Alexander died of pneumonia, making Elmira a widow at age 34. The estate Alexander left behind was worth an estimated $100,000 at the time. That'd be well over $3.3 million today. Poe could have easily been aware of this when he became engaged to the widow. But Alexander's will also stated that, were Elmira to remarry, she would forfeit three-quarters of her inheritance. The rest would go into a trust for her children. Those were Elmira's circumstances when Poe returned to Richmond in 1849. He immediately declared his love for her and proposed. Elmira was delighted at the chance for companionship, but hesitant about the union. She had her children to consider. Anne and Southall, ages 19 and 10, were resolutely against having Poe as a stepfather. They wept and pleaded for their mother not to marry him. Anne later said that she and her brother did all they could to discredit the suitor in their mother's eyes. 
And then there was the matter of Poe's scandalous reputation. Members of elite literary circles whispered behind his back about his drinking and his romantic dalliances. There was also a rumor, a true one, that he fathered a child out of wedlock with the poet Fanny Osgood. Their baby, Fanny Fay, died in infancy. According to biographer John Evangelist Walsh, this was enough for Elmira's three brothers to oppose the marriage too. On top of that, the brothers, George, James, and Alexander Royster, believed that Poe was using their sister for her money. So they set out to stop him. Walsh laid out his theory in his book, Midnight Dreary, The Mysterious Death of Edgar Allan Poe. It hinged on an alternative timeline of Poe's trips up and down the East Coast. In Walsh's telling, before leaving Richmond, Poe learned that the Royster brothers were planning to confront him. That's why he stopped by Dr. John Carter's office the night before setting off for Philadelphia, a visit we heard about last episode. Walsh explained that the reason for that social call was so Poe could pretend to absentmindedly swap their walking sticks. See, Dr. Carter's cane concealed a secret. Inside its wooden sheath, it contained a sword. In his memoirs, Carter explained that a friend had given him this special cane as a gift. Tragically for us, he didn't mention why the friend chose such a peculiar artifact. But most self-respecting Southern gentlemen carried walking sticks. So a novelty cane would have made sense as a present, the Victorian version of the gift for someone who has everything. I mean, I know what I'm asking for this year for my birthday. Anyway, Poe scholar Jeffrey A. Savoy gives a full account of the cane sword swapping. Savoy says there's no better way to explain how Carter acquired Poe's distinctive silver-topped walking stick. But he stops short of concluding that Poe traded the canes on purpose. That's pure speculation on Walsh's part. We have no evidence that Poe's switcheroo was anything but an accident. But Carter said Poe had plenty of time to notice his mistake after leaving his office. He could have easily gone back to return the sword cane before boarding the steamship. The fact that he didn't could be proof that the swap was intentional. No, because Carter's conclusion was that Poe was drunk, not a thief. And he didn't notice anything off about his friend that night. You'd expect that if he was afraid for his life, he would have seemed anxious. And if Poe was so worried for his safety, he could have just asked to borrow the weapon. In either case, we know that he did swap the canes. Next, the official timeline says that Poe got waylaid in Baltimore, where he died. But in Walsh's theory, Poe actually made it all the way to Philadelphia. Poe's physician, Dr. Moran, partially substantiated this version of events. In his memoir, Moran wrote that just a few days after Poe's death, a man stopped him on the street. He identified himself as a conductor named George Rollins. Rollins told Moran that he'd spotted Poe in late September on board a train. It was leaving Baltimore and heading north. Most shockingly, Rollins observed that Poe was being followed by two tough men who looked like, quote, sharks. These could have been Elmira's brothers. 
But Rollins' story doesn't fit with Walsh's theory in two big ways. First, Walsh was very clear in the rest of his account that all three of Elmira's brothers were pursuing Poe. But Rollins only saw two men. Maybe one of them was better at avoiding detection. It's possible. But Rollins also said Poe rode to the end of the line. Then, instead of getting off the train to catch a boat to Philadelphia, he remained on board, and he rode all the way back to Baltimore. Walsh's explanation for that was that Rollins was mistaken about the timing. He said the conductor saw Poe the second time a few days later, after he visited Philadelphia, and then he misremembered the details later. I find it very suspicious how Walsh explains away the contradictory evidence. The way he picks and chooses which parts of Rollins' story to believe is a classic hallmark of a bogus conspiracy theory. Either way, Walsh maintains that Poe made it to Philadelphia. He thought he'd given his pursuers the slip and checked into a hotel. But the brothers were still on his tail, and they burst into his room. They confronted the poet with their allegations of gold digging, then told him to break off his engagement and never return to Richmond or else. Strangely, Walsh seems very certain that this altercation took place in a hotel room, but he doesn't offer any evidence for why. If he'd found Poe's name or handwriting in a hotel registration book, I'd be inclined to believe him. Instead, it feels like he couldn't explain why there were no witnesses to the brawl, so he made up the hotel room to give them privacy. Also, it's odd that the brothers needed to go all the way to Philadelphia in the first place. They could have had their showdown in Richmond and saved a lot of trouble. Walsh said that the brothers wanted to avoid a scandal, so they followed Poe to a city where they had fewer social connections. I find it hard to believe that they couldn't have engineered a discreet encounter in their own hometown. Especially because the Philadelphia hotel room wasn't as secluded as they needed it to be. According to Walsh, Poe somehow escaped from his quarters. He showed up frantic and disheveled and unannounced at the doorstep of an artist friend, John Sarton. The more widely accepted chronology has this episode happening on his trip south several months prior. But Walsh said Sarton was mistaken about the timing. Once again, a convenient and selective use of the historical record. Yeah, but people misremember dates all the time. But look at the pattern. Walsh's theory only works if he contradicts key eyewitness accounts. Sarton would have had to be wrong by months. The visit either took place in July or September. That's a big difference. Whenever Poe arrived, Sarton asked his friend what was the matter, and Poe replied, woman trouble and revenge, but he offered no further details. Then, Sarton sheltered Poe for several days from September 29th to October 3rd. Remarkably, This can account for Poe's whereabouts for those days. No other historian can explain where he was during that time. That's true. But just because Walsh offers an explanation doesn't mean it's correct. Walsh's most compelling argument has to do with the poet's signature mustache. 
Poe insisted on shaving it off while he was with Sartin. He said it would help him evade the would-be assassins he encountered on the train. Right, but a daguerreotype of Poe, made shortly after his arrival in Richmond, shows the poet sporting a well-developed mustache. And the young poet Susan Talley wrote that when she first met Poe, his mustache was scrupulously kept. That meeting took place within a week of Poe's July arrival in Richmond. That was well before his facial hair could have grown back, which suggests Walsh's timeline is the correct one. But the actual date of the daguerreotype is unknown. It could have been from later that summer. And the quote from Tally was written 30-some years later. It wasn't a contemporary recollection. She could easily have misremembered that detail. Mustache or not, Walsh's theory picks up after a few days of laying low with Sartan. Poe decided to make a run for it back to Richmond. There, he would seek refuge with Elmira and tell her all about her brother's violent intervention. But first, he could have stopped at a secondhand store, disposed of his finely tailored clothes, and cloaked himself in those mismatched, threadbare garments as a disguise. He managed to get as far as Baltimore before the brothers caught up with him. They were furious that he disobeyed their warning, so they roughed him up. Then they pinned down his arms and forced alcohol down his throat, knowing full well how easily he became inebriated. Elmira had insisted on Poe's sobriety as a condition of their engagement. Her brothers hoped that if the tabloid shamed him for public intoxication, she'd kick him to the curb. So they left the incoherent writer at a tavern. They hoped he'd get himself into enough trouble to attract attention. Instead, he died. Even if the Roysters didn't intend to use lethal force, their actions meet the legal requirements for murder, which would explain why Elmira wasn't at Poe's funeral. Her brothers might have told her what happened, and she stayed away to avoid implicating them. But that doesn't square with the facts. By the time Elmira learned Poe was dead, he was already being prepared for burial. Up until she saw the news in the paper, she had no reason to suspect that anything was the matter. And even if she did know about Poe's death, skipping the funeral would only make her look more suspicious. It's unlikely she'd behave so strangely in an effort to protect her brothers. Poe's crime fiction may be far-fetched, but it was never as full of plot holes, distortions, and wild speculation as this narrative. It almost feels disrespectful that a conspiracy theory with such flawed logic has been applied to one of the greatest detective writers of all time. Not to mention that Walsh's book was not a hit with other Poe biographers and historians. An essay published by the Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore described it as a wild flurry of speculation with very little in the way of facts. And at the end of the day, I don't find his story very convincing. On a scale of one to 10, I give conspiracy theory number two a three. That's generous. I give it a one. 
The book makes extensive use of primary source material, but then its analysis is pure cherry-picking and convenient misrepresentation. By contrast, our next conspiracy theory is very grounded in historical events. We'll meet some political gangs that went to violent extremes to steal an election and see how Poe may have gotten caught up in their plot. Coming up, we answer some big questions about Poe's death just by looking at the calendar. Now, back to the story. Conspiracy theory number one suggested Poe was mugged. Conspiracy theory number two said he was murdered by his fiancé's brothers. Conspiracy theory number three takes a much broader approach— It connects Poe's death with a specific historical phenomenon. According to this theory, Poe was swept up in a form of 19th-century voting fraud known as a cooping scheme. The same day that a newspaper employee discovered Poe in a delirious stupor, the city of Baltimore held a municipal election. That could be the key clue to understand what led to Poe's premature death. In the mid-1800s, elections were far more rough-and-tumble affairs than what we have now. According to cultural anthropologist Martin Ford, politics at that time was a blood sport. Parties went to extreme lengths to secure the votes for their candidates. For example, members of the Rattlers American Club sought to suppress their opponents' rallies by infiltrating the gatherings and stabbing participants with shoemakers' awls. Baltimore was a national leader in electoral violence, corruption, and fraud. That's how it earned the nickname Mobtown. The violence and intimidation extended all the way into the voting booth. Elections today are designed to ensure that voters have privacy. But at the time, each of Baltimore's 20 polling places, or wards, was run by the dominant party. And because ballots were visibly distinct, anyone in the room could tell who you'd voted for. Depending on which ballot you turned in, you could expect to be rewarded with either a beer or a beating. Vote the wrong way at the polling place run by the Blood Tubs gang, and they dunk your head in a bucket of pig's blood. To tip the count in their favor, many of the major political parties resorted to kidnapping. Days before an election, they'd round up as many eligible voters as they could and imprison their unfortunate victims in sheds or coops. A single one of these coops could hold as many as 90 men. Party members would beat, rob, and intimidate their captives. They forced the victims to drink large volumes of whiskey to keep them easy to control. Then, on election day, they marched them to polling places and forced them to vote for their favored candidate. Afterwards, they returned the captives to the coop, made them swap clothing, and then visited the polls again, hoping that the change of appearance would earn each man yet another chance to vote. One victim of a Baltimore cooping scheme even testified that he'd been forced to vote 16 times in a single day. So maybe Poe got swept up into a coop. It explains why he was wearing tattered garments that were not his own. 
he would have been forced to swap clothes maybe multiple times. It also explains why he was so severely intoxicated. He'd been kept in a shed for several days and force-fed shots of whiskey. And on top of that, he might have been rewarded with a beer as thanks for each of his multiple votes, as was the custom at polling places at the time. With his already heightened sensitivity to alcohol, that would have packed an extra heavy punch for Poe. The tavern where Poe was discovered was the polling place for the Fourth Ward, and he was picked up there on the evening of an election day. One eyewitness claimed to have seen Poe in the coop. His story is recounted in an 1879 letter from a Baltimore attorney to Pope biographer Eugene Didier. But the lawyer only identified his source as my friend, a prominent man of San Francisco. Because the witness wasn't willing to go on the record, most contemporary historians dismiss this so-called testimony as a fabrication. That happened a lot with Poe. The public was hungry for stories about the macabre author's lurid death, and a number of unscrupulous individuals cashed in with outright lies. But Didier was considered to be one of the best biographers of his time, and several people close to Poe believe this theory. Maryland writer William Hand Brown wrote in a letter to a friend that the general belief here is that Poe was seized by one of these gangs, cooped, stupefied with liquor, dragged out and voted, and then turned adrift to die. But just because a lot of people believe in a conspiracy theory, that doesn't make it true. Overall, this story is fairly comprehensive, and it doesn't contradict any of the big facts. But there's just not enough evidence to prove it. The only concrete clue we have comes from an anonymous source, meaning it's impossible to verify. I'll go with a six out of 10. In this case, we agree. I think there's a lot of meat on these bones. At first, it seems like it's too outlandish to be true, except there's evidence that cooping was a widespread practice in Baltimore at that time. And it's a fitting end for Poe. I mean, he invented the detective story. He had to have an unusual death. That's a poetic thought but it's not how the world works. I still think it's most likely that he died from complications from chronic alcohol abuse. Every other account feels more like an attempt to salvage his good name. Poe's friends and peers didn't want him to die of something as salacious as alcoholism. Instead, the muggings, the murder, and the voter fraud are comforting stories that help him save face. Sure, but I think the cooping scheme story makes sense. It also helps explain Poe's whereabouts during the several days he was missing before his death. Like we touched on before, it's weird that no eyewitnesses stepped forward to discuss his binge, unless he wasn't actually on a binge. I agree. And given how many people invented stories to cash in on the speculation after his death, the absence of any testimony from this time period is weird. But you have to admit, He'd love that this many years later, people are still tortured by the mystery. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. 
We'll be back Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Emily Vaughn, with writing assistance by Allie Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Conspiracy Theories.